This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have with us New York State Senator Gustavo Rivera, who represents the 33rd Senate District in the Bronx. Welcome, Senator Rivera. Great pleasure to be with you, my friend. Thank you very much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. The first question I have is the most important. Uh, I believe your district covers Little Italy. It does indeed. See, for those folks who might be listening who are not familiar with this, in the south of Manhattan, there's a little neighborhood they call Little Italy, but that, my friends, is a lie. The original Little Italy is, an art, is a neighborhood called Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, uh, so-called because of the avenue that goes north and south through the middle of the Belmont section of the Bronx, and it is indeed in my district and one of the places that you can find the best Italian food in the city. So I invite everyone to come on down. It is a magnificent place. I'm going to be there a little bit later myself. Today. So uh, where are you going? Tell me. Tell me what's the place to go to. The, the, don't do that to me. This, is, this is one of those only as somebody who is both childless and has no interest in having children. This is that moment of the favorite child type situation. So because if you right. want. Uh, you love like, them all. Uh, I, I love them all. Like, or how about this? Tell me, which place, tell me or, which place not to go to. <laughs> place not to go to? Uh, Little Italy in South Manhattan. You can skip that okay, all together. Right. Just come up okay. to the <laughs> Now, uh, Senator, uh, you're a native of Puerto Rico. You were, uh, you were born there. You grew up there as a child. Yep. Um, tell me why it is that you came from Puerto Rico to the Bronx. What, what was the impetus for that? Well, I originally came to New York City uh, to do my PhD in political science all the way back in 1998. Uh, you'll notice that in your bio there and in your introduction, you did not introduce me as a doctor or a PhD. So that tells you how far I got. Uh, I started my graduate work in 98, uh, but then I'm technically still a graduate student, but in the middle of it, both are st after starting teaching college um, and uh, finding politics and government, I kind of haven't, uh, haven't gone back. But the reason I came up was to be an academic. That is originally what I wanted to do. And although I love to be in front of a classroom, it was the experiences actually that I got uh, while being in that classroom uh, teaching at uh, Hunter College, which is a, an enormous uh, City University of New York school right, in the middle of the city of New York, um, where I got the kind, of, uh, the, the kind of education that I got from actually interacting with, with real students in the real world uh, was, was actually something that kind of shaped the way that I thought about public service going forward. So originally I came here to do, to do academic work. Uh, but ultimately, I've become committed to continuing my life in public service, which has been a few years going, and hopefully I got a few more years, more years left. Now, uh, currently, you're, you're chair of the Senate's Health Committee, uh, and uh, you've been a leader on some criminal justice issues, uh, in, a couple in particular, bail reform, which we've made some progress in a couple of years back, and then some retrenchment. What is uh, what's the current status on uh, uh, any any changes in bail reform coming up in the legislature? Well, we have, uh, for as, as probably your listeners know, we have our legislative session, <clears throat> excuse me, is between January and June. We get up in Albany during that time. So technically, even though we're technically on session right now, we're not up in Albany on a regular basis. So any type of uh, legislative uh, action on this or any other issue would have would wait until January. We obviously have a new 
uh, governor, well, newish, she has been there for a few months. And so she has some opinions, obviously, on this. And we're going to be talking with uh, with her, with the governor um, coming next year. As of right now, I know there's a lot of political rhetoric going back and forth, but there's been no serious discussion about what potentially would be done. I can tell you for the record that I believe very strongly that bail reform was an absolute necessity. Bail ultimately is a criminalization of poverty. I, I do believe that even that, that, uh, that I do believe that the evidence points to the fact that yes, there have been uh, some spikes in violence and gun crimes, but bail reform is not to blame for it. Some of my conservative colleagues love to do that. Um, and I understand that people that might, uh, that, that pe when people are scared, they make arguments that might not necessarily be based in fact. Um, I will, I am opposed to changes in bail reform, uh, and, uh, and I will continue to be opposed to it going into next year. You said when people are scared, they're going to make up facts. What, what, are, what are people scared of uh, when it comes to bail reform? Well, I think that the argument uh, that has been made is that bail reform is to blame for some of the violence that has occurred. Uh, and as I said, I will acknowledge. And, and, and remember, I represent the Bronx. And I represent the Bronx and some parts of my neighborhood have had spikes in violence. Uh, but I would say that most of it has been, uh, it is blown out of proportion. Meaning, for example, if you look at, uh, at the numbers, um, you know, it, between, between, I mean, between January and June of last year, just to give you an example, around 11,000 people or so uh, were released under the bail reform initiative. This is last year. And of them, as of July of last year, only one person had been charged with a shooting. Now, this is last year that we're talking about, you know, come to, to a year after that, June 2021, uh, from from year to year, the statistics in June 2021 showed that there had been a sh uh, that, that shootings were down 20 percent and murders were down 23 percent in during the same time. Now you wouldn't know that from listening to Fox News, from listening to the from reading the New York Post, uh, or from talking to some uh, of my conservative colleagues who are convinced that the reason why there has been a spike in violence or that the spike in violence is much more serious than it actually is, um, that, that the reason why all this has been happening is because of bail reform. That is not the fact. Uh, it is fear mongering, the same type of fear mongering that led to so many of these, so many of these laws remaining on the books for so long. Pre-trial incarceration does not lead to safety. That's that's factual, uh, and which is bail reform is pretrial incarceration. We have to uh, we have to look at what the facts actually are, and we have to address this problem. We have to do it with an honest evaluation of what the facts are, and a comprehensive approach to public safety that focuses on the inequities that exist in the communities that are more stricken by violence and by and by crime. Now, you were involved in some legislation regarding expanding the role of bail funds uh, a few years back, which led the way to uh, the Bronx Freedom Fund, yep. which uh, is in uh, provides uh, bail for for some of those that uh, can't afford to make it. Tell us a little bit about the Bronx Freedom Front Fund and and those types of uh, services that enable people to post bail. Well, the, the, the story is actually a little bit different uh, than the one that you told. So back, this is back in 2011. I can't believe it was so freaking long ago. But 
excuse me, uh, an organization called the Bronx Freedom Fund came to me. They had been posting bail on behalf of indigent individuals, people who couldn't afford it. Uh, but they were told in the beginning of 2011 by a judge that they needed to stop because they were operating in a gray area of the law. So based on their experience and when they were posting bail on behalf of, of, indigent, of indigent individuals, we actually passed a law that was first vetoed by Governor Cuomo in 2011, but after negotiations in 2012, it was signed into law, which authorized and regulated uh, charitable bail funds. Now, the Bronx Freedom Fund was the original one. Now, what this means is that you raise private money, put it into a fund, and then you post bail on behalf of, of, of people who can't afford it, who were accused of nonviolent crimes. Uh, of this, then people would be able to go back home would be able to continue to lead their lives before they had to go back to court. Uh, and this actually, the, the results of this were, in, were incredible. The, uh, the, the reality is that uh, the overwhelming majority, I believe that over 80% of the people who were during that period of time between 2012 and 2018, who had uh, bail posted on their behalf by charitable bail funds like the Bronx Freedom Fund, most of like, like, like 80% not only came back for every single court date, but had their cases either dismissed or, 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 you know, there's a, a term of art in law that I forget right now, but basically they were, they went through the court, through the system and they were able to be found either not guilty or have their car charges dropped, et cetera. And, the, but that actually was before the bail reform happened because once the bail reform occurred, then many of the crimes, uh, the alleged crimes, right? If you were accused of something, most of these crimes were no longer bail eligible. So that meant that the that the that the charitable bail uh, organizations were no longer, you know, they they couldn't actually operate. Now, is there going to be any uh, is it going to be any effort to try to uh, reinvigorate those? Uh, potentially, I mean, we we uh, I mean, as as you said, as I said earlier, <clears throat> next year is going to be, you know. Next year is going to be interesting in a lot of different ways and conversations with this administration about how they're going to, you know, what exactly are they going to do? Are they actually going to ask us to change the bail laws? Are they, what exactly are they suggesting? Um, as part of those conversations, certainly I'll be involved to, to see if there's a space for, uh, for the bail funds to, to operate, um, for, to see if there's a space for them to operate, but it just, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it for the moment it doesn't uh, it doesn't look like that will be the case but you know we'll we'll wait until next year and we'll see what exactly this administration has uh, you know wants to actually do. You've been very active in in uh, changes to uh, parole laws. Uh, the Less Is More Act uh, recently was signed into law, which uh, was cutting back on sending people on parole back to prison because of technical violations, you know, mm -hmm. testing positive for alcohol or marijuana, something like that. But there's a couple others that are still pending, the Fair and Timely Parole Act and the Elder Parole Act. Yep. Um, Fair and Timely to uh, take a closer look at sort of re rehabilitation of those mm -hmm. that are incarcerated and the Elder Parole for those who are have become elderly in prison where I think uh, you know, it's believed that uh, continuing to keep them in prison, incarcerated, uh, amounts to something close to a death sentence. Uh, tell us about those two and, and, and what you think their chances of success are coming up. Well, let's start with some basics. 
Um, if you are a person that believes that once you have done, you've committed a crime, uh, that you should forever be judged based only on that thing that you did, um, and that there are some things that are unforgivable, then, uh, then everything else that I will say uh, will make no sense to you. I, however, believe in redemption. I believe that no one should be judged by the worst thing that they ever did. And I believe that people can change. So I believe if an individual accepts responsibility for a crime, something that they have done, if they accept responsibility for it, if they try to make amends, if they try to, uh, uh, to, to try to, to, to build back up and to make themselves better people, they should be judged about who a person is right now. If somebody has been incarcerated for 10, 15, 20 years, uh, that person, I believe, should be judged by what they have done in that period of time to better themselves and to rehabilitate themselves. Now, if you're still not saying that you, you had nothing to do with anything and you, you haven't done anything to, to, to fix your, the, the mistake that you made, then, you know, then certainly you should not be given a second chance. But the reality is that the overwhelming number of people who are incarcerated for all sorts of things, including violent crimes, and I know it is difficult to, to process, but you should never be judged by the, just the worst thing that you ever did. If you accept that you have committed a crime, if you accept responsibility for it, if you try to make amends for it, if you have changed, if you have rehabilitated yourself, I believe that you should be given an opportunity to come back into society. And the fair and timely act, fair and timely parole and the elder parole, uh, both of those pieces of legislation relate to people who are have been incarcerated for a long time um, and who are either elderly in the case of elder parole, that they should be, you know, they should be considered because all these bills do is they say they should be considered for parole because they're elderly. The reality is that most people, 55, 60 year old, they're not going to recidivate. They're not going to go back to prison. It is both harmful to them. It is costly to the state. And it is certainly an impactful thing on their families uh, who get to, you know, being behind bars and being with your family, being your family is better. And as far as fair and timely is concerned, what it does is it changes the standard because currently the state law basically says that you will, you will have to be judged strictly for what you did, however long ago you did it, and that you should not be judged by what you have done in the time that you have been in prison. If somebody has been incarcerated for 20 years and they have made, done every program that you can think of. They have graduated from high school. They got the GED. They got a college degree. They've started programs in prison to, to rehabilitate other people. They have, commit, they, they have committed themselves to, uh, to, they, to, to communicate with the, they, they communicated with the families of, of the victims that who, of people who they've harmed and made, try to make amends. All of these things should be judged. And I believe that those people should be given the opportunity to come back into society. And the fair and timely parole would change the law so that these things would be considered and not just what they were originally incarcerated for. Let me ask you though, how is that different than when, so when someone's sentenced and let's say they get 20 years and it's 20 years, but you can get out in 10 with good behavior. Um, how is that, how is what you're suggesting different than that kind of representation when someone is initially sentenced? Very different because what the law currently states, see, it says like, you know, you get time off for good behavior. Right. Like we've, heard, right. 
we've heard that term and what have you, but when you think, but when you look at the reality of people who are currently incarcerated, and I'm just talking about the state of New York, sure. The, the reality is that that when they go before a parole board, the way that the and you could read parole the parole transcripts, and you can read how they are what the kind of questions that are asked and basically said like so you know what you're in here for yes and it's like and 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 when when the decisions are written it basically says that the the terminology and i'm, I'm so angry that I, with myself that i that the terminology i'm forgetting it right now but it, there's a phrase in the law that says that if you as a parole board commissioner are letting this person off that would mean that you're disrespecting the law so it, it so basically we want to change that because currently what happens is that many parole board commissioners are are just say like listen I don't care what you've done in the last twenty years twenty years ago you committed a crime you committed a murder you did so basically it doesn't matter uh, we believe in perpetual punishment the current state of law basically says that somebody should be punished forever. And again, as I stated at the beginning of this whole thing, if you believe that that's the case, if you believe that there's some things that are unforgivable and you can never make amends for it, then, then it doesn't matter. You want somebody to rot in jail. I believe that if the person who is now before the parole board, after 20 years of having committed that as a young person or what have you, 20, 25, 30 years in some instances, should you be judged strictly by what some dumps that you did 15 years ago, 20 years ago? You know, but it, isn't the judge when in sentencing supposed to take all of that into account? Uh, you know, isn't, isn't what you're suggesting, isn't that taking away from a judge who, no, you know, listened to both sides and, and, no, and, 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 you know, went through a lot of, you know, uh, hair pulling and, and uh, anxiety over the proper sentence? It does not because you, sentencing happens. This happens years, sometimes decades after sentencing actually occurs. And as I'm telling you, somebody that gets 10 to 20, uh, you know, depending on the, the crime, there's some folks who then are, are, are perpetually punished because every time that they come before the parole board, even though they're eligible for parole, because remember what a, what a judge says ultimately as far as sentencing is that this is the time that you're going to serve between this and this, and you would be eligible for parole within a certain time period. So once you become eligible for parole, you go before the parole board. But if the parole board tells you every two years, because you you go before the parole board if you're if you're if they if they say that you're not eligible that, that you even though you're eligible that they don't grant you parole, then you go back in for two more years and then come back two years later. So if every time you go before the parole board, they tell you, they ask you, so what have you done in the last 10, 20 years? You've done this and, and you say all the things that you've done and you've done all these programs and you've helped all these people and you've done this and you've gotten these. Oh yeah, but do you know what you're in here for? Remember what you did 15, 20, 30 years ago? And then they go, they go, well, I can't let you out because if I did, I would disrespect the law. And there's a phrase in particular that we wanna strike from the and I've and I've kind of put it out of my mind because it just it basically is something that parole board commissioners say all the time, conservative ones saying, basically, you believe that you should be punished forever. And us saying that now, after 20 years of you doing whatever it is that you've done inside, that you can come back outside to society, um, that would be disrespecting what originally occurred. And and this the thing is that perpetual punishment doesn't help anybody. 
It doesn't help the victims. It doesn't, it doesn't help to repair harm. It is just pure punishment. And if you believe that, and there's some folks who do, and then if there's some folks who believe that there's some things that you should be perpetually punished for and that you can never, no matter what you've done afterwards, make amends. If that's what you believe, then everything that I'm saying makes no sense to you. I, however, believe that people can change. I believe that people can rehabilitate themselves. I believe in redemption. And if somebody has done all this work over a long period of time, they should be allowed the opportunity to come back into society. And most of these folks are not going to go back to jail, particularly because many of them are in their 50s and 60s. They're not going to recidivate. So why should we continue to waste money and have their lives be wasted away when they can actually come back to society? I think it's, no, I think it's a no-brainer, personally. So, Senator, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. We're we're still in the midst of this uh, pandemic. Uh, we're seeing, you know, perhaps a fourth wave now coming. Uh, you're chair of the Senate's Health Committee. Yep. Are we going to see anything? Is there any discussion about mandatory vaccines in New York State? Uh, well, some of the stuff has already happened, right? There's uh, uh, there's requirements for. Uh, first of all, I believe in vaccine mandates. I think that vaccine mandates, first of, all, first of all, they work. We saw what happened in the city of New York when there were mandates that were put on um, on uh, on workforces that you know that that some people were resistant to it. And as soon as the mandates were put up, and they were made very clear, if you don't get them within a certain period of time, we're going to have to you know you're not going to be able to continue to serve in your capacity as a public servant. Uh, and the and the rates of vaccination went up by a lot. This is the thing. I, I certainly, the, the argument that this is your body and your choice uh, stops making sense when the choices that you make as an individual can potentially impact some other person. Because somebody can, can harm another person. Now you're correct. You have the right to choose whether you put a vaccine in your body. Certainly. I am not going to force you to do that. However, there's, there's a requirement and we have all the right in the world for the sake of protecting other people. Now, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna be stuck in your home and you're gonna interact with no one, particularly nobody who's at risk, it's like, you know what, stay in your home, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to, because you're not gonna impact anybody by carrying something. But the moment that you're interacting another, with other people and the moment that you are placed in a situation where as a public servant, as an example, as somebody who works in government and interacts with the, with the public, you will be interacting with other people. You are putting other folks at risk by you choosing not to do something for yourself. So I, I, so at that moment, that's the line. That line, what that line is crossed. Now you are, you, you could potentially carry something, which could actually not only kill you, but harm or kill someone else, who you may not even know, who you have no interaction with outside of them walking by you and you breathing on them. That's the line. Once that line is crossed, it's like, I'm sorry, but yes, you should lose your job if it requires you to interact with other people and you're insisting that you're not going to do this. It's like, because you can, you can certainly put, put as many tattoos on you as you like. That harms no one else but yourself. Even like when we make laws, for example, about um, smoking, for example, I'm not stopping you from smoking. But I am saying that because we know that there is a impact on the smoke that comes out of your body on other people, we're saying you go and smoke over there. 
and we make those limitations. It is the same. It is the same logic. So um, I'm, I do I do think that that vaccine mandates work, uh, and that we should try to get as many people vaccinated as possible because we need to make this stop. You know, and uh, well, one way to get as many people vaccinated as possible would be to make it mandated for all adults in New York. Is that something that's being uh, contemplated? It is not necessarily being contemplated as a, as a blanket, uh, you know, as as a as a blanket requirement. But I do believe that both private industry as well as public and public, uh, you know, we, we have an we have an ability to make state to make requirements about certain things. Now, I'm not I'm not saying if 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 you like the requirement, for example, that you have it when you come into a to a restaurant in which you have to interact with other people as well as the employees there. I believe that that is a good standard. That is a good standard to set, and that and and we and private industry has the ability to do that as well as government has the ability to mandate that 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 the private company do that. Um, I think that there is a you know the blanket mandate for everyone. Um, you know, I, I think that we should that we should certainly excuse me that we should certainly uh, we should certainly go in that direction. It's we've already done it. I mean, we have, you know, children can't go to school without having certain vaccines already in them, right? This is a requirement that we make. Uh, so there's, there's, certain, there's certain standards that we should, that we should certainly pursue. Um, and, and, and I believe that there's, you know, we can have a conversation about the, the, the rights of an individual. The line is when, the, when, your, when your actions can potentially harm and because this is a deadly disease can potentially kill someone else unwittingly because if you're just walking around maskless with no with, with you know with with no vaccination you might be carrying something that can kill somebody who's just walking down the street doing nothing but minding their own business this is a problem so we have to you know i i believe that we should pursue every every angle to certainly educate people but at one but at some point say then there's certain things that you will be required to have a vaccine for if not you cannot participate in it. Well, Senator Rivera, we're, we're talking about obviously very serious issues here. We have uh, something of a lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called <laughs> Music, Book, or Movie, where Ooh. you can share with us some artistic or creative uh, experience that uh, might be enlightening for our listeners. So you seem, uh, what do you have up your sleeve for us on Music, Book, or Movie? Um, I have a little bit of everything, actually, because I'm I'm a big see as as I uh, obviously this is an audio podcast, but behind me I was pointing to it earlier. That's a bookcase that's completely full of uh, of comic books. So I'm a big comic book guy. Um, but let, let's go with music first. I okay. will tell you that the new there's an album that just came out. Uh, Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack made this super group called Silk Sonic, which is a blast from the past, like '70s funk soul with some sprinkled modern modernism into it it is an absolute banger as the kids say and i found myself kind of bouncing up and down to it quite a bit in the last couple of weeks i just released like last week and i've been bouncing around with the singles for a little bit so that's that's all that i really i'm very much a fan of that movie i actually cannot wait uh, for Friday, because I am going to go to the largest IMAX theater in the continental United States at 68th and Broadway to watch Ghostbusters Afterlife. 
And as an enormous nerd, Ghostbusters is one of the movies that I remember most fondly. And I am so looking forward to going and seeing that one. Um, and as far as the book, it's this is this one is a little sad, but I'm still I am still very much going in this one very much, which is on tyranny: twenty lessons from the twentieth century from Timothy Snyder, uh, which is a little book that you can put in your pocket and then get scared every time you look at it because you think about all the things that are happening in our fine country and all the challenges that we have to avert a uh, um fascist takeover of our world so there so there you go That's, there we go so not that uh, lighthearted, but there you go Those so it's it's music book or movie and you you gave us an overabundance here because we've got silk sonic we've got uh, ghostbusters and we have Tyranny. so we've got a a lot to do uh so uh senator rivera thank you so much for being with us on miranda warnings and uh, sharing your views on these important topics. And thank you for your service to New York State. Uh, we appreciate both very much. Pleasure to be with you. And I'm uh, glad to glad to have visited and to say hi to David King, who I know is hanging out in the background over there somewhere. David Good King man, is our I producer think. and uh, we're happy to have him with us as well. Thank you, Senator. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.